Hey, hey, everybody. Welcome to episode 17 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. This month, we're all about neuroimaging, and our first guest, Dr. Karen Davis, comments on what this tool can tell us about pain. Dr. Karen Davis is a senior scientist and research division head at the Crumble Research Institute and professor of surgery at the University of Toronto. Having Karen on the show was an absolute pleasure. She's arguably one of our biggest fans and always supportive of student-run projects like this podcast. And man, does she have a lot of great things to share. Our conversation starts off by dispelling some of the myths out there about how we experience and perceive pain. Then we get into how brain imaging changed the course of pain research and the advances the field is looking for right now. She also reveals a little bit about her supervisory style and the steps new students can take to ask the right question when studying pain. As always, Raw Talk needs your raw feedback on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and on iTunes. Yes, we're on iTunes. If you haven't done so already, subscribe to the podcast, then give us an honest rating and leave us a comment. Bringing you this content on a bi-monthly basis has been a joy for all of us on the team, and we appreciate all the love we've gotten so far. But for now, sit back and bless your ears with some Dr. Karen Davis. Enjoy the show. Well, thanks for being on the show today, Dr. Karen Davis. Thank you for inviting me. It's a pleasure to have you. So I was actually really excited leading up to this conversation. Pain is a topic that I'm interested in um, because much like consciousness, is which, which is what I study, um, it's, it has a large subjective experience to it. That's right. Right? Yes. So it makes it difficult to study but also very attractive. Yes. And especially with all the other components with pain, you've got the emotional component, the cognitive component. And it's also a concept that's digestible for even the lay people, non-scientists. Yes. But I imagine because of that, there's all these opinions going around about pain as a concept, and you hear some misconceptions. So is there anything that you hear that kind of makes you cringe, misconceptions about our understanding of pain from the scientists to non-scientists that you want to touch upon? Sure. Um, in fact, I just had this experience uh, speaking to a healthcare provider uh, last week that, uh, you know, when I mentioned I study chronic pain, you know, uh, that, that uh, opinion that, oh, I guess, uh, you know, you have to deal with the fact that most people are, are malingerers and, and, you know, faking it and saying, oh, you know, my back hurts, so I can't go to work. And, and that, that is a misconception um, that, that, most, that most people who claim to have chronic pain are, are faking it. it, it and it, it does a real uh, disservice to, to the patients and, um, uh, and it, it, it hurts uh, the scientific community who's, who is studying it. So, th- so that is a bit frustrating if, if a patient, you know, is um, going to be kind of predetermined before they even uh, talk to their healthcare provider that uh, they, you know, that they have to kind of prove or convince uh, that physician or, you know, their family and friends that, that, that they're truly suffering. So that, that's, that's a problem. Because they usually say it's all in your head. It's all in your head, right? And I always say, well, your brain's in your head, so <laughs> <laughs> everything that you're thinking or feeling or experiencing is, you know, is uh, is reflected by um, by your brain. So, so yes. And was was that one of the motivations for that TED Ed video? I watched it. It's actually really cool. Oh, just thanks, to kind thanks. of um, overcome these misconceptions, just to give a basic understanding of how pain is processed. Yes. And Actually, that that's 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 uh, exactly correct. That that the motivation was um, to dispel some of the myths that are out there, and to let uh, people uh, know and healthcare providers know that that the the vast intersubject variability and differences between people and how they uh, perceive and experience pain is is real and is is an issue that needs to be uh, considered. You know, you can't put everybody into one pot. Um, and if people have just kind of uh, one idea of, of what the pain experience should be or pain response should be, that's going to be problematic for people who, f- who aren't fitting into that small, narrow box. Mm-hmm. And the idea of pain sensitivity, because, again, another misconception may be, oh, you're, you're just weak, you can't handle the pain, whereas exactly. someone who can handle the pain, they're, they're strong. 
right um, exactly yeah so you know that um, you know there are, there's a large body of uh, literature that's looked at cultural effects and um, sex differences and uh, all sorts of factors that go into this intersubject variability and that that's really important because um, that that does impact uh, how we how we treat pain and how we, we look at people and and the social stigma you know of, of uh, you know not dealing well with pain but in fact if people who uh, bottle things up uh, you know in in many aspects of life that can have very negative consequences uh, in terms of stress um, blood pressure, um, you know, all, all those sorts of uh, outcomes, depression, you know, so, so bottling things up and not, not seeking even help when you do have a problem can, can lead to further um, uh, physical and mental health issues. And um, you've got about a, over a, a million views on that video. It's impressive. <laughs> I do. I do. Um, and it seems that knowledge translation is a big theme in your lab because um, there's also an e-book you guys recently published that's the right. basic science of pain that's right and that's one of your students um casey hevington that i'm i i'm friends with working with ims magazine um she's she was involved in it so what is that what was the purpose of doing something like that as well is it target audience just scientists pain scientists or also the broader public well that so that book um so it was uh uh the kind of the brainchild of of uh, philip uh Peng. So he's an anesthesiologist here at, at Toronto Western and, and also a, a colleague of mine. And he, he has a great interest in, in education. Mm -hmm. um, and he's also kind of usually on the cutting edge of, you know, using new media and different ways of communicating. And many of us kind of are, are still maybe in, in the last uh, century in, in producing educational materials kind of in a very you know, old-fashioned didactic way so he came to me with this um, uh, concept you know he's done ebooks before on different topics and he wanted to do one on pain um, prim primarily for uh, people within the field um, uh, perhaps uh, not necessarily somebody that is is at my stage but either either a trainee or a healthcare provider that that needs kind of more of an overview or a refresh of, mm -hmm. of, of aspects of pain, uh, but I but in an accessible way and in a fun way and in kind of a modern way. So um, I was delighted that uh, that Casey got involved because um, you know I, I could easily write the the text uh, of the material, but what makes this kind of educational tool really pop and be um, fun for people is the uh, opportunity to use you know video and, and interactive modes and that's what that's what Casey produced for it mm -hmm. so so it was really all, all her work that that made made that uh, that's great. exciting that's great. move for me into this century hi everyone this is Swapna and today on ask a student I have the pleasure of being joined by Casey Hemington welcome Casey thanks for having me so Casey Hemington was actually just mentioned um, by Dr. Davis in the interview with Jabir, where she talks about Casey and her role as a student in her lab, as well as her role with the basic science of pain, the ebook that was being mentioned. So Casey, I w that was actually the first question I wanted to ask you about. What was the experience of contributing to a book like this um, for you? And did the process help you in your grad research? And how did that um, flow with all of the work that you're doing? So it was actually a really fantastic experience working on the basic science of pain, uh, working with Dr. Philip Pang, who's an anesthesiologist at Toronto Western Hospital, and he's a really fantastic educator. And one of his goals is to uh, help translate his research and the research of others and basic scientists to clinicians who might be um, might find it useful to have information about pain. And so that's what this book was really. That this ebook was really created for. Uh, my role, I was an associate editor for this book, and I don't think that's an opportunity that a lot of grad students get, so that was really mm -hmm. great to have that opportunity. Um, but beyond sort of the typical editorial role that one might have for a book, um, my role was really beyond that. I was doing things like taking all of the content and animating it to make it really easy for the clinician to access. So the cool thing about having an ebook is that you can have 
um, the text there, but then you can also have all these links within the book to videos and animations and types of interactive pictures so the clinician can best understand the material. And so my role beyond being an editor was to um, provide those animations and make the content really easy to understand. That sounds great. That actually answered one of my questions that I was really interested in, and that is how does the book contribute to managing pain in practice? And you were talking about the animations and how that creates a really effective tool for clinicians to use and to understand um, the content in the book and apply it in practice. And so this is really a tool for disseminating knowledge in the field and, and for practice for clinicians to use. Um, what is the key message that you think is currently misunderstood in the field and that might be addressed through knowledge um, translation efforts like this? I think that there's a really broad variety of questions that are misunderstood in dealing with, with chronic pain. And this book was really for the physician who uh, maybe has chronic pain patients, um, but maybe isn't primarily a pain physician. Mm -hmm. And as we know, pain is involved in a lot of different types of other chronic conditions. And so the physician might be an expert in those areas, but also need to bring in some, some pain management knowledge. And I think just one message that uh, clinicians or others or, or scientists or even the public is not aware of is all of the different aspects that go into a chronic pain experience. Mm-hmm. So one has to consider the psychological aspects of the pain experience and the different types, the different qualities of the pain that the person might be experiencing um, that can affect the person's cognition, how it's affecting their daily life how the different medications the person is taking might be affecting their pain. Um, And so there's just so many things with pain to uh, consider at once. Um, And pain is very, very multidimensional. Right. Uh, So another way that this book is useful for clinicians is that it gives them the tools to be able to quickly understand different types of pain research. So from cellular pain research all the way to neuroimaging pain research and if they have summaries right in front of them explaining how these techniques are used and how they can be applied and how they can be interpreted, that will help them to more easily read and understand uh, research as it's being created or as knowledge is being created and then apply it to uh, their own work and their own practice. Great. It's really evident um, that you're very passionate about this field and I was wondering what inspired you to become involved in pain research? That's a really good question. I think pain is such a, a, it's a funny thing. And as a topic or as a, as a field, um, there's sort of, there's, there's inherently a very basic aspect to it. We don't really understand a lot about just pain as, as a, as an acute perception. And we don't really understand exactly how chronic pain occurs. Mm-hmm. Um, but it it's also has important and, and evident clinical applications. I like to compare pain to memory, for example. So with memory, there's the basic science of understanding how memories are formed, mm-hmm. and then there's clinical applications, for example, studying uh, Alzheimer's patients. So studying chronic pain, you're bringing those, those two aspects, the basic and clinical aspects together. And I think that's one of the, the things I really like about it. Pain is also, as I mentioned, one of the, it's, it's involved in every type of, of in, in a lot of types of chronic diseases. So it's, it's really important to study across almost every field. And you're a student in Dr. Karen Davis's lab. Yes. How did you end up in that lab? Uh, so I did my undergrad degree and my master's degree at Queen's University. Mm-hmm. And then after that, I transferred to the University of Toronto for my PhD. And I was really interested in, in neuroscience, and that's what I did my undergrad and my master's in. And then I wanted to get into understanding the brain with the use of neuroimaging techniques. And so uh, Dr. Davis is really an expert mm-hmm. at that, uh, as well as in pain. Great. Sounds like you're in a great space working with Dr. Davis. Um, the last question that I really wanted to ask you was around, I'm wondering what a big challenge that you see in the near future in this field might be that students like yourself 
uh, might be able to help unpack through through your training? One of the questions that I think neuroimaging can help us answer is teasing pain apart from all of these other uh, dimensions that it's involved in. So pain perception overlaps with attention, it overlaps with cognition, it overlaps with um, different uh, moods or states or, or traits in a, in a person. It's co- uh, commonly comorbid with depression, for example, mm-hmm. uh, things like that. And so in neuroimaging, we know, for example, that there's no one pain center in the brain, right? You can just, um, can just target this one area and all the pain will go away. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in the brain, pain is less obvious um, and less obvious, obviously mapped than something like vision, for example, or memory. And so I think one of the things I'm trying to understand as a pain neuroimager is what are uh, the exact correlates of chronic pain in the brain. Great. Well, there you have it. Um, Ask a student with Casey Hemmington. Thanks for joining us. Jabir, back to you. So with new pain researchers or new students coming to your door and they just ask you, I want to get on the right track. I want to get started on the right track. What do you recommend that they read along with this ebook? Maybe check out that video. Are there some classic seminal papers that you think it's a foundation for them to understand now that would help them kind of just refine their idea and their uh, right. research question. Yeah, so that that's a really uh, good good question because I think um, uh, it's really difficult uh, and challenging for students today to come into the field with uh, perhaps too much information mm-hmm. at their fingertips. I think one of the biggest challenges when you uh, come into any field, probably in science, is to figure out where's the good information and where's the kind of frivolous information. Um, so, uh, and the the pace of publication these days and the numbers of journals has has escalated uh, tremendously. So it's it that is a challenge. So I think it is important to really get um, a sense of what's the good stuff <laughs> mm-hmm. and and that that takes time there's no shortcut for that you need to kind of be immersed in the field uh, go to conferences go to uh, different um, training programs where you can kind of meet who the leaders are in the field and go back and and yes read read the original articles uh, read commentary about mm-hmm. about theories uh, because it's very hard if you j- if you read reviews uh, even um, more more recent reviews on on any field you you get a biased view it's 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 a nice way to start because you get an overview mm-hmm. and and that um, launches your thinking into a field but everybody who writes a review obviously has a bit of a bias towards what message they want to get across so you don't always get a sense of you know what were the controversies you know at a certain period of time that led to a certain type of thinking and led to a, a line of research. And I think understanding that um, then in moving forward um, gives you a, a greater understanding of you know, how to ask a question. So um, I actually um, uh, co-teach a graduate course on, on pain and plasticity. And in that, in that course, we traditionally have covered uh, a variety of papers, uh, usually pairing a classic paper uh, with um, a more modern paper so that people could see you know, where research has come from and where it's gone so that they can think more about asking questions. So like the Melzack and Wall gate control theory. Sure, yeah. And, and you know, it's, um, it's unfortunate, but the way the system works in um, many graduate programs uh, is, is that at the end you write your thesis. And at that point is when most students in my lab have really dug deep into the literature. Uh, I usually have them write quite an extensive literature uh, review. And in that literature review, th- they finally, kind of near the end of their program, they get a very, very in-depth um, understanding of the field. And so, so many students in the past have written uh, review papers mm-hmm. um, after they finish their thesis uh, coming out of uh, that experience. Um, it's interesting that in some labs they actually have their students write that literature review in their first year. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something I've been considering maybe uh, 
at you know changing the way I, I mentor students. I'm not sure if students are necessarily ready to appreciate the literature early in their program, but it is a good idea to get them really, really immersed uh, right, f right from the beginning. So that the problem I think is that it takes a long time to really know what you don't know. So that's when you come in, you don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that's where sometimes um, students can propose uh, an experiment or a line of research um, out of passion, which is fantastic. Mm -hmm. But they don't know what they don't know. So th that, that, uh, that study might not be very well grounded in what has come before or what the burning questions are. So I do tend to um, not lock students into a, into a particular uh, study until, you know, midway through the first year. Give, give them a lot of time to mm -hmm. do some reading so that they don't kind of, you know, um, naively jump into something that might be costly mm -hmm. and, and, and waste a lot of time because they, they didn't know about a certain... Which is know, fair factor. because it, it even takes uh, multiple attempts going through that paper, yes. right? And when, once you're doing your experiments and you realize something's not right, you look back at the paper and you say, oh, this wasn't right. Yeah, exactly. Right. And, and methodologically, when, you, when you're starting to read papers before you've actually used that method or, d or have experience with a certain type of analysis or, or statistics, um, you're, you're, you're just going to gloss over those details in any paper you read because they don't have meaning for you until you're actually doing it. So you're right. Most students um, will tell me that then you know, that they'll end up rereading some key papers maybe two, three times throughout their PhD program and they see it through completely different mm -hmm. eyes. Same thing happened to me. So it's relieving but sometimes frustrating because why didn't I catch that right. earlier? But just to take a s step back, yeah. um, let's talk about how you got interested in pain research to begin with. I know you tell the story about a high school, influential high school teacher that right. got you interested in science, but you also got involved early in research, about in your second year of undergrad. Right. But why? Why was it important for you to get involved into research early? Right. Well, th so that's that's a good question. Um, and you're right. I had an influential teacher that got me interested in in actually uh, pain and pain modulation very very early on. But I think um, uh, I I wanted to uh, you know a lot of people if they're if they're good at math and science in high school the um, natural thing is people think, oh, well, I should, you know, plan for a career in medicine or in dentistry. Uh, you know, people, uh, when you're in high school, you don't necessarily have a lot of uh, options that you're thinking about because you just don't have those role models. Um, I actually ha had an uncle who was a biochemist, an academic. Uh, so I, I had in my own family experience somebody um, who, you know, was a role model. And, and so I I had that image in my mind that that um, you could be a scientist and you can you know you can, you can do that sort of thing. So that was something I think that was um, important that maybe some students don't don't have that image. Um, I think the other thing, and it might sound a bit hokey, uh, <laughs> but I I remember from a young age, you know, in in the sixties and seventies, you know, everybody was was. Um, uh, conducting, you know, telethons and all sorts of uh, events to raise money for for various charities, and I remember watching the Jerry Lewis telethon every every year and that sort of thing, and and seeing that um, at the focus of, of a lot of these uh, events was the research, mm -hmm. and uh, and so even though obviously being a physician is is of course critically important to take care of people, but uh, I guess I had the idea from a young age that to move forward and to try to um, uh, come up with new ways of, of helping people that you needed to under understand um, biology and, and eventually neuroscience. So I think that, that impacted me that uh, to make a difference and to, uh, to gain knowledge, you know, science was the way forward. What was the moment when you realized you can actually do this? You know what, I'm, I'm good at this. Was it your master's, your PhD? I don't think post you ever think that. You don't, you don't ever <laughs> I, think that? I think you're always thinking you can, you can do better and you can learn more things. And we're constantly retooling. You know, I, st I started uh, 
I spent m basically the first 25 years of my career as, as a single cell electrophysiologist. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, brain imaging hadn't even been invented, you know, when I, when I first trained. So, um, so our tool set is constantly evolving and our questions that we can then ask are constantly evolving. And I don't think, um, I don't think many academics ever have an aha moment saying, oh, you know, this is it. I'm. I've landed now. I think it's it's a very slow evolution. We're always looking to to improve and get better. And that transition be from being a neurophysiologist into the brain imaging field was it obvious? Did you know that brain imaging uh, or imaging techniques was going to change the course of pain research? Well, th again, th there was no necessarily aha moment. Um, it was interesting back when I think back to. Uh, first year uh, biology mm -hmm. uh, course that I took here at U of T. So we're talking about the late 70s. <laughs> and uh, I remember we did, you know, kind of modules on different areas as part of the course. And, and uh, we used to read these, uh, what was called Scientific American off-prints, little reviews from Scientific American. And there was one um, that had a big impact on me, and it was on brain imaging. But back in those days, I mean, there was no MRI. MRI mm -hmm. hadn't been invented, let alone functional MRI. PET hadn't been invented. Um, but there was uh, a very crude technique um, based on um, inhaling a compound that they could then uh, image using a, a, a very crude technique. And it did show very crudely um, you know, what was being activated in the brain during uh, reading and speech and things like that. And, and I remember back then as a first year undergrad student thinking, wow, this is, this is going to be great. Of, of course, the technique was really crappy and yeah. uh, wasn't very, sp and didn't really reveal anything that we didn't already know. But, um, but it was at the back of my mind that down the road, we might be able to look at uh, brain function um, in humans. Uh, in awake humans, mm -hmm. uh, you know, without opening up the skull and things like that. So that was at the back of my mind. Um, but um, transitioning into the, the more modern neuroimaging, that was a that was a process that wasn't like, you know, overnight. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Hi everyone, Swapna here. And on our next patient perspective segment, I have the pleasure of being joined by Philip Tees, a graduate student at U of T, who will be sharing his lived experience with chronic pain. Thanks for joining us, Phil. Thanks for having me, Swabna. To begin, Phil, can you tell us a bit about your personal experience with chronic pain? Sure. So I fractured my L5-S1 about 10 years ago um, and had two surgeries subsequently to repair that. Um, and since then, it's been yeah, 10 years now, so I experienced daily, probably moderate to severe pain in my uh, low back, pelvis, and legs. So and it controls just about everything I do. Um, constantly needing to calculate how much time I can spend, how much energy I can spend, uh, and always working to keep my body strong, keep it healthy, and, and basically do self-care self just about every day. So how does chronic pain affect your everyday life? Can you expand upon what you were talking about uh, when you mentioned calculation? Yeah, definitely. So this issue of calculation, I think, is the one that every person who experienced chronic pain deals with. So you're constantly judging, calculating exactly how much energy you can expend and how much your pain can affect you. You essentially have to judge how much fatigue you can deal with, so the levels of pain. A really useful shorthand for this is uh, spoon theory. So um, this is commonly used in disability studies. It's been taken over into mental health. So it was first described by a woman named Christine Mazarandino, describing how lupus affects her day to day. So she gathered up all the spoons and described to her friend that you start your day with only so many. You get dressed, you lose one. You go. You eat breakfast, you lose one. You make it to work, you lose one. You work a few hours, you lose a few. You come home, you do your laundry. All, everything is a deduction. Basically, it's a way of describing kind of a finite amount of energy or tolerance that you have and how, and how you lose them. So you can get into deficits as well, where you overexert yourself, and then you're, you're down for a day. So you have to constantly be building in these cushions of time to to make allotments for the pain and kind of how it affects you and also for the unpredictability of the pain 
So you never know when it's going to knock you down, but you always need to keep kind of a spoon reserve. So just in case and kind of have a plan A and as well a plan B. So a plan A as in where you would go to work for the day, but a plan B, which would be a total abort of that day when you just become overwhelmed with pain. And that would include an entire self-care regimen at home. So, and again, that's also a luxury. I mean, not everyone can afford to just kind of lose a day. So Dr. Davis mentioned misconceptions that people often have when talking about chronic pain. Have you had to face any misconceptions or stereotypes in your experience of managing chronic pain? Yes, definitely. Um, So the main one for me is how invisible it is and how able-bodied I present. So, I mean, I'm six foot two, 190 pounds. I'm an athletic young man. And uh, most people seem to immediately see me as such. So they can't, when I tell them that I have uh, chronic pain or serious health issues, a lot of people have a hard time believing it. Um, Or they see a young guy walking to the store with a cane or sitting in a handicapped seat on on the TTC and they, you know, they look twice. So I think the the visibility part is the hardest part. So visibility is an important concept when considering chronic pain. What else do you wish people knew about chronic pain? The thing I wish people understood or knew a bit more about chronic pain is the composite effect of it and the way that it affects every aspect of a person's life touches every single relationship you have, every single action, every single decision. So ranging from your relationships with your friends, with your family, with coworkers. I wish people could take this fuller view into account. I mean, both people in general and healthcare practitioners and realize that pain really manifests itself in emotional, mental, and physical ways. I find that healthcare practitioners They tend to focus a lot on the physical and the mental and emotional disposition, which are really the most deciding factors, tend to go by the wayside. They become the most important when you know you have a condition that it simply will not go away. When you encourage patients to harness this mental focus, to learn that you can't always control your pain levels or the function of your body, but that you can control your mental and emotional response to it, this becomes really the most effective coping mechanism and the one that can lead to a full life. You mentioned an active lifestyle. How do you maintain an active lifestyle while managing your chronic pain? Well, I really have no choice. Um, as every doctor would probably agree, I mean, inactivity is the worst thing possible for pain. Oh, and it's something that I've always loved and has come natural to me. I was always a strong athlete growing up, and that was always very much part of my identity. So being able to work out and play sports is a huge factor, both in terms of just keeping me physically strong and keeping me flexible and you know my hips open and things like that, but it also works as an emotional analgesic. So as when you're able to do intense physical activity, even if just for a little bit, it's usually enough to keep away kind of feelings of inadequacy or weakness that come about um, just by being bombarded with these pain stimuli all day. I'm able to really keep this lifestyle by structuring recovery strategies uh, pretty much before and after almost every physical activity I do. So one example is I I play hockey once a week, and I want to consistently be at the game, but I'm only able to do this with these two, with these recovery cushions on either side of the activity. So before I play, I have a thorough stretch, and I do a small mindfulness session to kind of feel where my body's at and sort of how it might react. So that puts me in a, a mental space to be able to go and exert myself and not feel too scared. So fear is really a paralyzing factor in trying to live an active lifestyle. So after the game, I usually take an Epsom salt bath and I'm able to fully decompress, so both mentally and physically, and kind of tell myself that it was okay that I played and you know I know that uh, the emotional and physical effects are, are very important. So I'm able to sit in the bath and kind of reflect on this. So we play at 11 p.m. and sometimes I take it th- I'm taking this bath at one in the morning, but having this routine creates the mental comfort of knowing you're doing all you can to keep yourself in the game. So it's able to allay any feeling of guilt that you might have of not doing enough. And the active life is also really just a result of the pain. So they kind of have a symbiotic relationship where the pain can cause so much anxiety and rage and really the only healthy avenue is through physical activity. 
uh, I know a lot of people abuse drugs and alcohol, and I've certainly had my experience with that as well. But what I've experienced in the past 10 years is that really uh, adrenaline and endorphins are the best painkillers and mood stabilizers out there. Okay, thanks so much for taking the time to share your experience, Phil. Thanks so much for having me. I hope this gives a bit of a snapshot into an invisible yet important issue. Okay, there you have it. Patient perspective with Phil. And now back to you, Jabir. So what has neuroimaging taught us about pain, pain modulation, pain processing, um, pain management? Right. Yeah, so it's really been an opportunity to look both at some common uh, reactions and responses in the brain that might be similar across people, but it's also an opportunity to look at those those differences that might make up our unique experience. And more recently, you know, the emphasis has been on can we use this to understand why people respond differently to treatment, and that might um, help us steer patients towards one treatment versus another that might be more effective uh, for them. So. So that's, that's where things are going now. And what are your current projects, present day? What are the questions your lab is grappling right. with right now? Well, so that, that's exactly the, the, main, the main focus in the lab is to try to um, see if we can kind of construct um, databases of the vast, you know, intersubject variability mm-hmm. uh, of, of pain sensitivity, but also how people... Um, have different brain circuits that that could be tapped into for different types of treatments. So so more of a pers- personalized medicine approach. I like how you emphasized circuits because you know, as a neuroscience undergrad, we're always taught centers or spots. This is the spot for consciousness. This is the seat of consciousness. This right. is the center for um, pain. This is the center for emotion. Right. But it's all functional network. It's all yeah. um, more more than one region is always involved in a process, and I think that's what neuroimaging helps show that it's not just one signature for pain. Right. Well, that, that has been one of the huge um, uh, benefits of, of brain imaging um, compared to, you know, my, in my early days doing kind of single-cell electrophysiology, you know, all of us doing that kind of work had... Um, kind of a, uh, their favorite spot in the brain yeah. uh, that, that they uh, spent years examining, you know, cell by cell. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of critical information about how those cells operate obviously was, was acquired. But, but we know from, you know, decades of failures of neurosurgical procedures of trying to um, uh, target one specific area mm-hmm. of the brain for pain, we know that, like you said, one... One one area of the brain is not is not where the, there's the seat of of pain. That's that's been uh, a search for years. But but we know that you know people can have strokes in areas of the brain. That we can target uh, neurosurgically areas of the brain. And and um, th- there, even though some areas might um, contribute to short-term effects, long-term uh, there's a lot of plasticity that goes on when when you knock out one area. So. It was clear that there is um, the need to understand networks, and mm-hmm. that's very hard using electrophysiology. Um, now, with with more sophisticated EEG uh, techniques, you certainly can look look at networks. But um, uh, uh, but using uh, brain imaging uh, g- gives you an, another opportunity to look at that. So clearly, yeah, we need to understand how brain areas. Uh, act together and how they communicate with with each other. So yeah. what kind of networks is your research group focused on right. when it comes so to pain? Yeah, so there used to be um, this idea that, you know, there were these pain pathways, a very um, linear pathway. Um, and that's not really a network. That's just kind of a, a labeled line. And there's no doubt that those pathways do uh, encode pain. But uh, they're not the only... Um, player in town and I- again if you just target a single pathway you're not going to um, produce good uh, analgesic effect for for, um, for people with chronic pain so it's been clear we developed this concept uh, that we called the uh, dynamic pain connectome and that came out of some work uh, that that was done by a former student Aaron Cousy in my lab and he was um, looking at um, how people spontaneously um, drift away or mind wander away from pain versus 
um, being very focused on pain. And out of that kind of research and other projects that went on in the lab, uh, this idea that we, you know, there are other networks in the brain that are used for other things like the salience network to tell us what's important, uh, the default mode network which kind of hums along to kind of uh, keep us going before yeah. we um, focus on something else. And, uh, and again, all these um, uh, traditional pain pathways and descending top-down control of pain pathways. So basically what we did is we put all these concepts together and also the concept that um, that communication between these areas are quite dynamic on a moment-by-moment -moment basis, but also based on certain situations uh, that might arise. And so we kind of um, group these things together, and so we now talk about this dynamic pain connectome as something that really should be um, emphasized and looked at. I saw this topic heading, which I thought was very apt. It said mind over misery in uh, with with respect to what you're talking about, how right. attention right. Um, plays a role in pain processing. Right. And um, I thought that was really interesting. So it's, again, yeah. good to study pain and the other dimensions that it's uh, related to. Right. Hi everyone, Swapna here, and today on Professional's Perspective, I have the distinct pleasure of being joined by Dr. Nedra Meehan, who is a physical medicine and rehabilitation physician doing a subspecialty residency in pain medicine in the Department of Anesthesia. Welcome, Dr. Meehan. Thanks for having me. So today we've already heard from a patient on her experience with chronic pain and managing it in her everyday life. And we're wondering, how does chronic pain fit in your practice? So as a chronic pain uh, subspecialty resident, I see chronic pain every day. Uh, being a physiatrist, I see a lot of patients with primary disabilities. So these include things like spinal cord injuries, traumatic brain injuries, strokes, uh, complex musculoskeletal conditions, where the prevalence of chronic pain can be as high as 70%. Um, so I'm involved with kind of the assessment and management of chronic pain, whether it comes to non-pharmacologic management, pharmacologic management, or uh, interventional pain management. So I see it pretty much every day. So it sounds like there are a variety of contexts in which a patient might need to manage chronic pain. Um, what are some misconceptions that physicians might have when managing patients with chronic pain? Uh, yeah, that's an interesting question. So I think one of the common misconceptions is that chronic pain can actually, actually be objectively measured. Um, so, for example, on a three Tesla MRI or on an EMG machine, uh, whereas it's actually a very subjective feeling that the patient feels. So it's a very unple unpleasant and emotional disturbance that the patient feels. And, you know, sometimes that doesn't always show up on imaging. So what happens is sometimes you know, chronic pain is undertreated uh, by physicians and you get into complications of chronic pain. So when people have had pain for a long time, they end up getting issues like depression or anxiety. Um, they're unable to work. And so there are a significant amount of societal costs that can occur because of undertreatment of, uh, of chronic pain. I think one of the other misconceptions related to that is that, you know, it needs to be treated with medication. So it's not like acute pain where you can, you know, just work on the lesion, the pathological lesion. And the chronic pain, and the pain will go away. With chronic pain, um, you actually have to take a biopsychosocial approach, and that involves treating, you know, their pain. It involves treating their mood. It involves treating their sleep. And you know, that doesn't always mean medications. There are a lot. There are a lot of powerful non-pharmacologic treatments that can be used for that. So I think one of the misconceptions, and you know. Um, Maybe one of the reasons why we're seeing so much opioid use in the community right now is the reliance on pharmacologic me uh, measures. And, you know, I think there is a bit of a misconception that pain needs to be treated with these medications when people can use things like exercise or acupuncture, um, which can be quite beneficial and have shown evidence in high-level uh, systematic studies. So what might a physician or other clinicians uh, be able to do to address these misconceptions? Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I think one of the things is, is to start uh, educating themselves on what's available. And, you know, I don't say that as a critique of physicians. I'm learning more and more as I get into the pain world that, you know, I have to learn more and more. And the, the rest of my life is going to be a learning uh, process in terms of uh, understanding and managing chronic pain. But some of the simple things that, you know, people in primary care uh, could do is educate themselves on the, you know, self-management resources that are available. There are a variety of apps and websites 
and books that you know you can link the patient up with and they can start educating themselves on the management of chronic pain and I think one of the biggest advances has been the use of uh, guided uh, injections over the last few years in terms of uh, finding a painful structure and then putting a needle close to it and blocking that painful structure or treating it with a certain medication that can give the patient long-term pain relief. Um, so I'll give you an example. So if patients have low back pain and they have some arthritis in the facet joints, um, you know, there's been a lot of good literature over the last few years that if you're able to find the nerve and block the nerve um, that supplies the facet joint and the patient has a good response to a local anesthetic, then they can actually undergo a burning procedure of the nerve or what we call a radiofrequency ablation procedure where you actually burn that nerve giving them 9 to 12 months of sustained pain relief. And so in that way and with similar treatments to that, um, people have been able to really come down in terms of their pain medications and also have been able to function better in terms of simple day-to-day -day activities or in terms of their workplace activities. And the other thing is uh, that I already touched on a little bit was the non-pharmacologic management of chronic pain. So uh, this includes things like uh, talking to your multidisciplinary team members, right? Talking to your physiotherapist, occupational therapist, recreational therapist um, to see, uh, you know, psych psychologists, social workers, you know, that can actually make a big difference in the quality of life of patients rather than, um, you know, reluctance on pharmacologic means. So those are a couple of the, of the main things. So you mentioned a few other disciplines and healthcare professionals who might play a role in an interprofessional team. What has been your experience in an interprofessional team managing patients with chronic pain? Yeah, so I think uh, it's a really good question. I'm very reliant on my uh, multidisciplinary team members um, in the chronic pain setting. Uh, to give you a couple examples of things that have been really useful, so we have a transitional pain services uh, clinic at the Toronto General Hospital, and basically the intake is of patients who are on very high doses of opioid-type medications after their surgeries. And, you know, sometimes it's, um, you know, useful and indicated. Sometimes, you know, they, they've built up a tolerance to their medication and they're probably on more opioid than they actually need. So it can be very difficult to wean these patients off of opioids. But uh, we found that in that program, um, having um, a very trained psychologist to do assessments before the opioid weaning program and have regular check-ins with patients during the opioid weaning program um, was actually a pr very good marker of success in terms of uh, patients that succeeded in bringing down their medication use. So um, that's one example. The other one is just with, um, you know, the exercise piece of treating chronic pain. <clears throat> so in fibromyalgia, um, you know, which is chronic widespread pain, uh, you know, a lot of patients have been tried on a number of pharmacologic treatments, a number of interventional procedures, possibly surgery, and, you know, the patients are not getting better. But one of the most powerful things has been exercise and simply, um, you know, guiding the patient in terms of an exercise prescription, um, for example, getting them into a pool and exercising a few times a week uh, via aquatherapy, you know, monitored by a physiotherapist or occupational therapist, um, has been so beneficial and, and patients will sometimes come back and say that's been the most helpful thing to them compared to everything else that they've used. Sounds like the future of the pain field is really exciting. Thank you so much for your insights, Dr. Meehan. Thanks so much for having me. There you have it, Dr. Najam Meehan in Professionals Perspective. Thanks for joining us. Jabir, back to you. So are there places where you feel the pain field um, is getting stuck and it kind of needs to change its course? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, I certainly feel sometimes I'm getting stuck and, and the field is definitely um, sometimes not advancing as, as quickly as, as some other areas uh, in terms of fundamental knowledge. And I think that um, we've had great advances using functional MRI. and For example? Just in, in, in understanding uh, kind of at the systems level what's, what's happening, not only with patients, but in, in, in healthy individuals. Um, so I think w the field is looking for another advance uh, to, f to find things out. Now, we have um, a technology uh, in Toronto called MEG, Magnetic Encephalography, which is kind of um, a merging of uh, a 
both an more of an electrophysiology kind of approach um, and brain imaging. T so we can merge, we can basically find out what's happening in the brain, um, in the whole brain, but with a great temporal resolution that, mm -hmm. that MRI doesn't give us. So that, that gives us some more information about the timing of communication between brain areas and, and responses. Um, but there's still a lot to be learned, for instance, about the pharmacology. You know, we have uh, PET imaging, but PET imaging is invasive and it's pretty expensive. So I think overall we're looking for another, another um, technique that we can use to, to really dig deep into what's, what's happening in the brain in a non-invasive non way and ways that will then tap into way, you know, potential uh, modulators for, for, um, for treatment. So, so we still, you know, so for people interested in, in pain, um, this is a great time to get involved. We have uh, great things in front of us and mm -hmm. with, with, with technology moving at such a rapid pace, I'm confident that, you know, the next great technique is just around the corner. And the ultimate goal is really, again, that precision medicine. And right. you talk about right. identifying personal pain maps, and that's right. what neuroimaging can give us. Right, right. So we have the develop a development, for instance, of optogenetics, mm -hmm. which is a fantastic tool that's, that's already told us a lot um, in, in animal models. Mm -hmm. right? uh, so I think, um, and there are people developing all sorts of approaches um, that can be used in, in in humans, so I, I do think that there's a lot to be learned from what's happening in the animal world to uh, to apply it to human research. So there's a lot of success to be had in the translational side That's of right. uh, yeah. pain research. That's right. Um, I think we're pretty much close to the end of this. Um, is there anything you wish I had asked but uh, didn't? Uh, I think you've done a great job. You can have a career both in, <laughs> in science and in communications. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. It was yeah. a pleasure having having you. And where can people find you if they want to get some more information? Right. So they can just Google me, and I'm also on the IMS website, and uh, my email address is there. For sure. Thanks. Thanks thank again. Thank you. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and stay up to date by following us on Facebook and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. It takes a long time to really know what you don't know. <laughs>